Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. Come on in, we're gonna get started literally in a minute. Professor Larry Jacobs, and I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us. Before we get going, I want to just give you a heads up that our conversations um, are geared to including you. And I mean that. You'll see at the bottom of the screen, there's a Q&A button. Click that button, send us your questions. We'll get to as many as possible. Um, and you'll see this is a very important part of the conversation that'll be going on today. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's program, Health for All. We're delighted our special guest today, Elizabeth Fowler, who's the Director and Deputy Administrator of the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation and the Centers for Medicare um, and Medicare Services. Um, Ms. Feller is very well known to, the, to those of us in healthcare. She was executive vice president for programs at the Commonwealth Fund. Uh, before that, she was vice president for global health policy at Johnson & Johnson. Before that, she worked for President Barack Obama on healthcare. I got to know her way back when, about a decade or more ago, when she was chief healthcare counsel, the former Senate Finance Committee Chair, Max Baucus. Um, and I can go on. Uh, uh, Ms. Fowler is, is, has a very distinguished record and is widely admired, um, one of the few admired actually across party lines. She does have a Minnesota connection, which we of course have to acknowledge. She uh, spent five years as a health services researcher for Park Nicollet Foundation. And before that, got her law degree at the University of Minnesota. Liz Fowler, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for the invitation. I try to come back, I guess, virtually in this case, uh, whenever I can. And I wanna recognize uh, my good friend and partner in the series that we've been doing on uh, healthcare, Scott Kiefer, who is Vice President of Public Affairs at Blue Cross Blue Shield in Minnesota. Scott Kiefer, thank you for joining us to provide an orienting welcome. 
Yeah, thank, thank you, Larry. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm delighted to be here. And Larry, it's a privilege uh, to be a part of your brand and the partnership that we've had for a number of years. And when I think about your brand and dialogue across difference, I can think of no better person than Liz Fowler. Um, you know, I, I consider uh, Liz a, a, a dear friend and someone who uh, over the years I had many tough conversations with going back to when uh, she was working in the Congress and I was still in Washington. Uh, but the best thing I can say about Liz, as you said, um, regardless of sort of your view on some of the issues that Liz has worked on, uh, Liz has one of the just incredible reputations in Washington in the healthcare community and is just well respected. And I think that's really so important again to, to what you've tried to craft, Larry, across your center and what we've tried to set out in the hyperbolic conversations we have about healthcare so we can have uh, dialogue across differences. For those who have had the opportunity to look at the strategic refresh that Liz has put out uh, with her team at the Innovation Center, I think you'll find a, a roadmap for uh, that discussion and dialogue across difference. And one thing that's really great about this discussion is that the Innovation Center in and of itself, although it was um, created under the Affordable Care Act, and I think initially uh, there was you know, some partisan tensions there, I think the Innovation Center has proved to be pretty durable um, and bipartisan in nature. And I would say, as, as I read through the strategic refresh, some of the issues around reducing the complexity of the financial benchmarks, uh, making those uh, initiatives more scalable, uh, making them all focused and sensitive to the needs that we have around racial and health inequities. Those are some of the same things, ironically, that the Trump administration uh, in the Innovation Center was speaking to. So I think that's the fun part of this conversation. I'll also say I'm, I'm delighted that although access to insurance is really important. And as we've said before and discussed in several recent forums, Larry, we have a great story uh, with respect to access. So Liz, one of the things you may not know that's really exciting is the uninsured rate in Minnesota actually fell during the pandemic, uh, which you know seems really crazy because we were so concerned about people losing their insurance. Uh, we see just today that the number of people getting insurance through Minsure, our state-based exchange is up and that's a part of it. Uh, but really, this isn't the access conversation. We have a good story there, recent history. We have so much work to do. And I think just thinking, uh, Liz, on what I read uh, yesterday, I didn't see your remarks at the US of Care, but your discussion about the need to focus on lowering costs for Medicare beneficiaries, I think is so important. And we think in particular, I know you had some comments about the high cost of drugs and insulin, uh, just really looking forward to the discussion. So uh, thanks everyone for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Liz, we're glad you're here. You're probably glad you're Zooming because I think it's minus four outside right now, but uh, really look forward to the discussion. So welcome everyone. Well, I don't miss those temperatures. I can tell you that my car starts whenever I want it to uh, these days. But <laughs> thanks for having me, and thanks for the really warm uh, welcome. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, uh, Liz Fowler. You know the history of 
uh, America's um, work on, on healthcare pretty well. Um, and if you look at um, Medicare and uh, Medicaid, which were passed in 1965, one of the themes has been rising costs. Only 15, really 10 years after it was passed, you saw Jimmy Carter and then Ronald Reagan making the cost control of uh, national health uh, care expenditures, but also Medicare's surprisingly sharp uh, increase in spending, a top priority. Um, today, we're looking at um, an annual increase in 2020 of three and a half percent, putting Medicare's expenses at $830 billion. Um, and this fits with the national trend that we're seeing where um, national health expenditures um, now account for over 19% of the gross domestic product. Um, and it's coming at a time when the population is aging, which is gonna to continue to push up the cost of Medicare. It's also at a time when uh, Washington and the national government are expanding access. So this expanding healthcare cost challenge is a real one um, and one that we've been wrestling with. Um, can you situate the work you've been doing in terms of this broader picture of rising and in some cases, you know, really uh, threatening um, uh, increases in healthcare spending? Well, I can, and I, I think some of that goes back to the history of the Innovation Center. Why was, why was the Innovation Center created? Um, and it was really during the debate over expanded coverage. Um, sorry about the dog in the back never fails. <laughs> Hopefully she doesn't bark. <laughs> um, going back to um, the time when we were debating the Affordable Care Act and, um, you know, there were a lot of members of Congress who felt pretty strongly about the need to control healthcare spending and bend the cost curve of health spending as they termed it. Um, and, you know, at the same time, while we were expanding coverage and when we looked out across the landscape for new ideas, there really weren't a lot of ideas that were ready to be part of federal legislation that could be implemented. And so the Innovation Center was created to, um, to really test new models, what was happening out there that maybe were good ideas and, and could we test them in Medicare and Medicaid and scale them if need be. And I think now 10 years later, and I saw one of the questions in the chat, like what's the best large-scale research proving that value-based care saves money and maintains quality. I'll say, you know, we don't have the answer to that. There is no silver bullet, it turns out. Um, we have uh, four models that were um, certified to be expanded from what the Innovation Center has done um, from the last 10 years. I wouldn't say they're the most transformational. I mean, they're important models, the home, home health value-based purchasing, um, Pioneer ACO, but then also um, recurrent non-emergent ambulance services and diabetes prevention program, which is important, but um, it's maybe not in the line of the delivery system reform and the impact that we were we were seeing. I will say though that if you compare um, the projections for national health expenditures in 2010 uh, with where we ended up 10 years later, it hasn't grown as fast as was predicted back then. So whatever you think is the reason, and maybe it's not the models, or maybe there's been an, an effect, um, economic, COVID, you know, you name it for a number of factors, but there has been a slowing uh, in the rate of growth. I don't think that 
I've come to see this as a marathon and not a sprint in terms of what we're trying to achieve. And I also think um, that we all have something vested in trying to succeed in curbing this growth of health expenditures, because if we can't do it through value and better care um, and better outcomes, I think what happens because of the solvency debate and you know other factors is Congress comes in with sort of a meat ax approach and does a, an across the board cut and says, we're gonna reduce everybody. So there's a lot riding on the ability to um, see change and hopefully eventually see savings through what we're trying to do. Um, the solvency date is right around the corner at 2026. So um, that's what I feel like we have at stake. Thank you. And you've covered a lot. And for folks who are not healthcare junkies, let me just try to, to bring you into the conversation a bit more. Um, when Medicare and Medicaid was passed, the dominant model and until recently still dominant model was something called fee for service, which meant that each identifiable service that a doctor or a hospital provided, they were reimbursed for that. And it, it created a tremendous incentive to, guess what, provide more services. Um, and some of those services were not needed. Some of them actually not helpful or not grounded in, in science. And it really hurt all of us in terms of the country's pocketbook. So over the last 40 years, since I'd say 1980, there's been a lot of conversation and experimentation with how to transform um, the way in which providers, again, hospitals and physicians primarily, how they're paid with the idea, if you change the way providers are paid, it's gonna change their behavior. Um, and it went from, I'd say initially a focus on consumers that they could be kind of the discerning shopper um, and that turned out not to work and there was a pushback on that. And more recently, there's been a focus on the providers themselves. And the idea is that providers should be paid for value. That is the healthcare of the patient. And there are a lot of different ways in which that can happen. And the um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which Liz Fowler now directs, has been at the forefront of that. And um, it's really striking, uh, as Scott Kiefer said, the, the, the continuity and that thinking about how do we move past uh, fee-for-service Ms. Fowler, as you know, um, the Innovation Center, um, and you've talked about this, um, batting record, not so great. You know, there are a lot of models, over 50, that have been tried, and only five or six have actually shown statistically significant savings for Medicare. Why are we still trying to look for this accountable care organization that would, that would reimburse providers for health, patient health care? Well, I think if the alternative is unmanaged care, and I, I use the example of my mother um, who's in Medicare, who went to see her, um, she went to see um, an orthopedic surgeon for shoulder pain, and um, the doctor told her she needed a shoulder replacement surgery. Um, and I encouraged her to get a second opinion. That seemed a little extreme for pain. She went to see a second doctor and he said, you're right, you just need physical therapy. Um, having someone out there without help managing their care, without help, help navigating the system to coordinate care for chronic conditions, she also has chronic conditions that, that need to be monitored. Um, 
I, if you're, I, I think it's a, an approach in traditional Medicare, in fee-for-service Medicare that can help organize and coordinate um, better care for patients like my mother and help her navigate the system and, and provide that sort of um, sounding board and second opinion and, and, and navigation. Um, so I think if you look at the Medicare Shared Savings Program, those organizations, and that's part of the Center for Medicare, so we don't run the Shared Savings Program, that is the ACO, sort of the bigger program. Um, those um, organizations participating have generated shared savings. They have, if they show that they can coordinate care and, and save money, they get to share in those savings. And they have generated those savings. Um, and so we think that that sort of care coordination is where we need to go. And Larry, let me say also what we found when we, when I first got in and did sort of a listening tour, like what have we learned over the last 10 years? One of the things that we heard was there were a lot of models and some of them competed with each other. They collided with each other. We had specialty models and primary care models and ACO models, and, and they were sometimes competing for the same savings, um, even within the same health system. Um, so you might've been part of the hip and knee replacement episode of care and part of an ACO, well, who gets the savings if, for example, my mother sees PT instead of, um, instead of goes for shoulder replacement surgery. And, and so we're trying to streamline our models and think about how to harmonize them and think about care from a beneficiary perspective rather than from um, the provider perspective. So we're sort of shifting our focus to what would work for beneficiaries. And that's, that's the strategy that we're trying to implement. And that does call for a greater role for primary care, a greater role for accountable care. In countries that do have lower spending, and I see there's some questions about other countries and I'm happy to talk about that as well. They do have a more prominent role for primary care um, in their systems. And we think that that's something we can learn. So there are a number of different tools that have been talked about um, at the Innovation Center and by other folks over the years. Um, one of them is risk, that the provider needs to assume some level of risk uh, for the coverage of the patient, that if costs um, are above some level, then they're gonna uh, experience a loss, um, or they could experience a gain if they're able to provide high quality care uh, and come under um, a benchmark of some sort. What role do you think risk Plays. Is that the most important tool that, that you have in your kit? So that's a really interesting question, and I'd say there's not an easy answer. So for those in the audience that don't follow risk, um, you know, if, if, if a patient is more expensive than, um, you know, than you anticipated, according to the benchmark, um, do you, are you at risk for that um, extra spending? And um, we have models that are one-sided risk where you only get the upside, but not the downside. And then there's two-sided risks. And I think that's what you're asking is about the two-sided risk. If they also bear um, some uh, responsibility for the losses as well as the savings. And, you know, I think it's an open question. And the way that I think about it is that um, some in our healthcare system are much further ahead, much more advanced in value-based care. They want that risk because they think they can manage it and they're well-equipped. 
and well-resourced and they, um, they can bear that risk and they want those opportunities. And we have to make sure that those opportunities are available. At the other end of the spectrum, there are sort of maybe novice providers who haven't made their way into value-based care. And I think there needs to be an on-ramp um, for them as well. And maybe downside risk is not something that is appropriate. Um, and so I think we have to do both at both ends um, before we answer the question of whether downside risk is, you know, is a must um, in order to see the changes we want to see. We're going to get in a second to um, the work that you've been doing to address health disparities and social determinants of health. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to tie that into this issue of risks that providers are taking on. If you look at community health centers and other uh, providers for underserved populations, are those the kind of um, uh, situations where you think a risk model needs to be you know, carefully structured and, and thoughtfully uh, managed? Um, I mean, I guess the short answer is yes, it needs to be carefully managed and, and we need to make sure that um, we're monitoring uh, impacts that, um, you know, looking at the questions that we're not skimping on care, that appropriate care is available, um, that patients can continue to see physicians and providers and not, um, you know, if you stay in this sort of model, you're not subject to networks. Um, and um, those are sorts of um, issues that we track pretty closely. So another kind of broad topic that comes up in conversations about affordable care um, organizations and the, and the push towards value-based care, should the government be mandating this? Should it be requiring providers who would rather sit on the sidelines, look for kind of low-hanging fruit, maybe to uh, pick up um, well profits or, or gains? Um, or is that something that you're you see some real downside to. Um, Larry, you just hit your head on the other topic that I would say is sort of in this world that, you know, the Innovation Center lives in that's sort of most controversial. There's the area, the, the issue of downside risk and then the issue of mandatory models. I think as we look back at our models, most of them are, are voluntary. And that may be one reason why we didn't see a lot of savings because you only go into the model if you think you can make a go of it. And you only stay in the model if it's working for you. And so if you don't think you're gonna make more money, you can drop out. Um, we do have, we have a couple of mandatory models, not a lot. Um, I think we could be doing more in this area, but those are controversial as well. And, um, you know, I think we also have to think about safety net providers. You know, you're, you're raising questions about health equity and disparities. Like, do we wanna push providers in that don't have the resources the tools, the capacity, the capital um, to succeed in these models. I think we need to be really careful about making sure that that we're not, you know, setting up some providers to fail. In my mind, I think we do need to get to some sort of mandatory, but I can tell you not everyone in the administration agrees with that. There's a dif difference of opinion. Thank you for that candid answer. <laughs> um, and just thinking about some of the debates we're having right now about the role of government um, I can imagine that there would be significant disagreement outside the administration too, as you move into uh, mandatory uh, models. Let's uh, talk a little bit about what's known as social determinants of health. Um, and this is a very important topic. 
um, what we what we know is that um, the health of all of us is determined by factors outside of medical care. Um, the stress you have in jobs, your access to nutritious food, um, your access to um, affordable housing, and, and on down the list. And then in addition to that, there are disparities in the medical care that Americans receive, and it tends to correlate with income, race, and ethnicity. What are your thoughts about how this, this shift towards alternative payment models might be a solution to some of these, um, these inequalities in health and healthcare? Well, I think social determinants of health is um, part of what we do. I think you mentioned it is it, those factors, access to food, housing, transportation do impact health in a very real way. Uh, we've had a model called the Accountable Health Communities model that did test um, referral and uh, connection to community-based resources um, that might help um, patients address um, some of those social determinants or determinants of health. And um, I think the way that we're seeing it is that um, rather than have a standalone model that just looks at social determinants, we should be building in some of what we've learned into our other models, into ACOs, into the Medicare Shared Savings Program, um, into the other models that we're running. Even you know, where we have an oncology care model, we're thinking about what comes next in oncology. And um, should those providers also be asking about um, you know, nutrition needs, which could directly affect um, the outcome of their cancer care? And I think we're thinking the answer is yes, that those screenings ought to be um, more widely used. And so I think there's a whole conversation at the department about how to incorporate social determinants, how far to go down that line. And so absolutely, we're, we're very much interested in that conversation and those solutions. And like one of the things I like about what you're saying is that there's been a tendency to kind of segment, segment off the health disparities, social determinants conversation with kind of targeted interventions which have a role, um, but the, the issue you're raising and that um, the department's been, um, I'd say working towards is how do we make this holistic? How do we encompass um, the full set of tools um, and the payment, <clears throat> payment models uh, so that it's, it's picked up in many places? Um, let me ask you about some of the strategies, specific strategies um, that you see as important for addressing why it is that Black, Indigenous, and people of color um, are receiving um, healthcare in, in different ways than whites, and why their health outcomes are so much poorer, inferior. Um, what are some of the tools, specific tools, that you think can help? To improve care? Um... Yeah, improve care and, and, and kind of address the social determinants issue that you've flagged. Well, I think we're looking at social determinants in these total cost of care models. And again, like I think that term is confusing. It's not a capitation necessarily. It is someone is managing the total cost of your care, the total um, spectrum of your care needs. And I see in the chat or the questions about, you know, all this focus on cost. 
we are trying to focus more on patients and trying to focus more on the quality metric. And so, um, but that flexibility to be able to provide those supplemental benefits, those supplemental services, um, it's very hard to do in a fee-for-service system, um, which is why in an advanced primary care model, in a, um, an ACO model, um, tends to be the way that we're looking at it because I think it's more likely to be successful um, in addressing needs while not um, raising costs. But I think to some of the questions, we are trying to focus more on care. And I do wanna say also that, um, you know, in the last 10 years, a lot of our models have focused on providers. We spend a lot of time talking about providers, talking to payers, talking to health systems. I think we haven't had um, the level of input from patients and beneficiaries and consumers that we need. And so we are actively exploring how can we make sure that we're accounting for that patient and consumer voice in what we do. Um, you know, I think this is, um, you know, this is a, it's not, I mean, it's something we should have been doing. It's something we do to some extent, but we should be doing more of. Um, for example, when we measure quality, making sure that the metrics we're considering are meaningful to patients um, and not just what, you know, what the provider is looking at for the, for the payment perspective, if that makes sense. Actually, this issue about um, collecting data is one of the most basic issues. If you don't, I mean, and I'm an academic, I'm all about data. If you're not identifying, collecting and reporting data, it's very hard to even know about the disparities uh, that do exist. Um, and is that something that's been a priority for you? The data priority for us has been making our data more available. I think um, the Innovation Center hasn't um, made some of its data available to researchers, for example, in the databases that researchers access. So I think in my mind, when I hear data, I think we need to be making sure that, that people have access so they can look and look behind the curtain, look under the hood and, and see um, um, and be able to do the research that, that uh, you can do in other parts of Medicare. It's not a direct answer to your question, but that's how I'm thinking about data. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, ongoing conversations about Medicare was the creation of something known as Medicare Advantage uh, about 20 years ago. And it's, uh, it allows Medicare patients to opt into what is essentially a privately uh, managed um, alternative from the traditional Medicare program. That's been going on and it's picked up a good number of Medicare beneficiaries. There's something else that started under the Trump administration. It goes by the name of direct uh, contracting entities. And these are privately owned, the privately controlled uh, networks um, that um, attempt to generate profit. And there's been some concern about whether or not the department is going to roll that back or how it's going to respond. Um, members of Congress, former um, uh, directors of the Centers for Medicare uh, Services and others have kind of weighed in on that. Uh, do, do you have a reaction to that? Yeah, because I think I came into this job uh, with a lot of questions about the model, um, even wrote a blog about it when I was at the Commonwealth Fund um, before taking over this role and really had a lot of questions about who was participating and um, you know what was the program, the purpose of the program, 
and have really looked um, very closely at it. Um, the model is um, an ACO model. Um, it is the next generation of our ACO portfolio after the next generation model um, ended at the end of December. This is sort of the next generation. Um, I think the presence of private entities in healthcare is not something new and it's not unique to CMMI models, the innovation center models. Um, private equity is entering dental care, they're entering behavioral health care, they're entering ambulatory surgical care. So I think if you were worried about um, new entrants, um, I think there's, you know, you've probably been reading more than just what's happening in our models. That said, I think there are, you know, would we have done the same model? Would it have looked the same? I think there, we probably would have done something slightly different, but I think there is some value in this test um, to try to provide better care to patients, which is at the heart of what we do. Congress tasked us with trying to experiment with payment and delivery system models that um, provide better care, better outcomes, better value. And I think there's something to learn from it. It is a time-limited, narrow model. Um, it is scheduled to end. Um, we monitor very closely the care that people get. We are looking at whether patients are um, moving from fee-for-service to Medicare Advantage. We don't think that that's the case. Um, it, this model is not a, a gateway. I think that's been one of the criticisms. Um, we monitor patient access. We monitor patient satisfaction. Um, and I am very much aware of some of the criticisms and we welcome input. I think some of the concerns that have been raised have some merit, but I think some of the concerns have also been mm, not, not, I guess, not based in fact. Um, but I'm happy to have that discussion and I'm happy to have that conversation. Thank you. Um, we've got a question here from uh, Shanasha uh, Whitson, who works, um, runs Community Partnership Collaborative 2.0, uh, which is one of the navigators for the Minnesota um, um, uh, Health Exchange, where people get, excuse me, more basic health plan known as Minsure um, and our exchange. Um, and she's got concerns about the fact that black and brown people are statistically significantly not insured. That's been, of course, a durable challenge. Um, and her specific question is, what can grassroots organizations do to organize community around how to get policy change around rising healthcare costs and this gap in access to insurance? Well, I hope that the access gap is at least um, Congress is attempting to close it. I think some of the changes and the, some of the temporary um, subsidies and, and supports that have been included in, in recent legislation um, and that are pushed by this administration should help close that gap. I think Minnesota is lucky in that it's one of the states that expanded Medicaid and uh, has one of the lower uninsured rates across the country, but still I think there's more that we can all do. Um, in terms of health costs, I mean, having spent um, a good number of years on Capitol Hill, I will say members of Congress do listen to constituents. 
uh, we did a report every week of what people are caring about, what are people writing in about, and as the person who handled healthcare for a senator and and earlier a House member, um, looked at a lot of that incoming um, and really tried to monitor where things were and really um, it did shape um, our views, the senator's view of um, potential policy changes. So I would, I would maintain that people should continue to stay engaged um, and make sure that they make their voices heard. Been talking about alternative payment methods um, as a way to drive uh, lower costs, improve quality of care for patients, and to address. Uh, the disparities in care. Um, there was a, there's another approach, which is rate regulation. And in 1980 or so, Ronald Reagan, the conservative, adopted what was known as a prospective payment system that set rates, um, and it was expanded from hospitals to, to physicians. Um, and it's contributed to Medicare having a lower um, cost per patient than the private insurance world. Um, one of the questions I think relates to this is why not borrow from what's worked in other countries in looking at rate regulation? Why not you know, build on that model and not um, on payment reform itself? So a couple things. First of all, um, I spent a summer working for the British National Health Service um, and it was really eye-opening. And I also spent a summer working uh, for a German sickness fund um, and in a previous job had a, had a global role that let me, um, that allowed me to learn a lot about a lot of countries' healthcare systems, including I saw in the conversation in Taiwan, which is where my mother is from. Um, I think there are obviously countries in the world that do a lot better than we do. Um, but I also think my observation in, in, in that, in that travels, in those travels is that um, a country's healthcare system is a reflection of, of their culture. And I think one thing that I would say is that Americans like having choice. Um, now, some in the audience might disagree with that, but the ability to go see any doctor, the ability to go see um, any, um, any specialist that they want without having to go through um, any sort of gateway. Um, I also think in terms of the regulated pricing, um, we do have regulated pricing in Medicare, and the challenge has been you might regulate prices, but you're not regulating volume. And so just because you control the prices doesn't mean that people can't go and get care um, that may not be necessary. In, in England, when you go to see a doctor and they say you don't need an MRI, and they're very closely tracking those capped global payments, um, the patient says, okay, I won't get an MRI. I think here, um, in this country, when someone says you don't need something, you go find another doctor because you're pretty sure you read it on WebND and um, you think it might be beneficial and you want to have that access. And I think there is something unique about um, the American system that is a reflection of, I think, our, our interest in make sure, making sure that we continue to have that access and that choice. I don't think it's a good thing. I think if we were starting from scratch, would we have a single payer system? Um, I think that we would, but we're not starting from scratch. And I think what we would have to give up for some of those systems is, is maybe more than some people would, um, would be willing to, to sacrifice. And I know that's not a, 
great answer for some and probably will get me in trouble, but that's my observation from working on these issues and traveling and, and looking at US health policy for a number of years. Interesting, um, the recent experience with the new um, Alzheimer drug that came on the market. We had uh, the FDA approve it. It was controversial because of uh, somewhat limited scientific data. Um, and then we had Medicare recently come out and say that it would only pay for the use of this new Alzheimer's drug if it was directed at individuals in approved clinical trials. Is that an example of the government stepping in and, and steering the choice of consumers and saying, you know, we're not going to pay for that if, you, if it's kind of a choice uh, that you're making? So I think um, that decision, and it's a proposed rule, so it's open for comment for 30 days. So if, if there's disagreement about the, that proposed rule, um, now's the time to weigh in. Um, from the CMS perspective, we think it was made based on evidence and based on the science um, and based on the potential value to patients countering the, you know, um, and also considering, you know, potential side effects. There's a question here from one of our really um, involved um, health policy people and a, and a doctor, Jim Hart. Do you worry that the shared savings models run the risk of underserving patients? Well, I think that's why we're trying to monitor quality. We're trying to monitor access. Um, we have a lot of pieces in place to make sure that that's not happening. And um, I think the goal is better outcomes. Um, if we thought that something else was happening um, and there was a risk to patients, I think that uh, we would be able to see that um, in the data that we're collecting and, and analyzing. Could you give Jim and others an example of specifically what you mean? You know, you're collecting data, you're monitoring. Is there something that stands out you know, recently, but also in the past where you could say, hey, this is the kind of thing we don't wanna have happen and we would intervene? Um, you know, I think, um, I mean, a recent example, um, I can't think of one that from our specific model, but we do look at um, access to care. For example, is the level of care being provided to a population about what we would expect it to be compared to sort of, to, for example, a control group um, or a similarly situated group that isn't part of the model? Um, do we see and is that care, um, you know, what we would consider to be necessary care that could impact um, health and outcomes? So that's the sort of that's the sort of metrics we're looking at. I had um, a number of questions that tie in with community uh, partnerships and community-based efforts to improve care and, and coverage. Um, here's one from Joelle Hoft. He says, when it comes to addressing social determinants of health, can you talk about partnerships with community-based partners that seem especially promising? Well, I think we have learned from the accountable care, accountable health communities um, model um, that did require that referral to community-based organizations. Um, I think one challenge has been making sure there's the link between the providers and the community-based resources. Um, and also, um, 
I think another model that we have is the diabetes prevention program that enrolls um, community-based providers. I think that is not always a smooth relationship. Um, provider, uh, you know, the, the, the organizations don't necessarily, they're not used to billing Medicare um, or being paid by Medicare. And so I think we need to do a better job of thinking how to make that relationship um, and those transactions, um, I think maybe more simple and um, more, um, more friction, more friction-free, uh, if you will. There's been conversations in Minnesota and nationally about making the price of healthcare transparent or more transparent. And the idea that is that this would empower uh, patients slash consumers to choose better um, uh, options for their care. That is maybe less expensive, but equally effective or more effective um, opportunities. Um, Ed Sheehy wonders, what is the role of price transparency in helping consumers choose more cost-effective care? I think transparency is actually pretty important. Um, I'm not sure that as a consumer that I would do research um, if I needed knee surgery um, and go out and find the cheapest um, provider, especially since they may or may not be a network. Uh, they may or may not, you know, my cost sharing may or may not be reflected in, in that overall price. Um, if it's urgent care, I think it's, um, it's unlikely that someone's gonna look for a lower cost provider in, in the case of urgent care. But I think it can play a role in demonstrating how much variation there is in the cost of healthcare across the country. When you see threefold, fivefold, sevenfold difference um, in basic procedures, I think that's something that's, you know, an indication that something's not working um, in the system. Um, so I think that price transparency is an important um, element of driving change. Um, but I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's that useful in terms of driving consumer or patient behavior. So I think this is a really interesting um, observation uh, as part of this shift of the last four decades, which started with, you know, Entoven, who was Wayne Entoven, who was an economist at Stanford, arguing that it was really we needed to empower consumers as discerning shoppers. Um, and after, I don't know, some decades of that not really working out, um, there's now been this shift. And this is what you've been talking about in terms of accountable care organizations and other ways to organize and coordinate care. So the focus is on the providers and not relying on consumers who could be in a really uh, vulnerable position as someone who's sick, who's not gonna, not gonna be able to go out shopping like they're looking for a car. Um, you know, they need care. And the point that I think you've been making, you know, jump in here, is we need to be relying on models that put the, the providers, the hospital doctors in the position of making reasonable uh, decisions that improve the outcomes for patients. Um, so I think, um, I think that's right. I think that variation though is an important indicator, um, maybe not for patients, but it is an important indicator where, um, where and, and you know, 
maybe it's the ACO, for example, that can look across um, and look at that data and that information and think about it in making referrals. Um, if you look at some of the, the models, um, you know, the bundle payment models that, that the Innovation Center led, um, and this was before my time, but a lot of a lot of those savings were trying to look for those areas with the greatest variation and squeeze out that variation in cost. Um, if one provider is doing it at the same level of quality, but for half of the cost, um, that's where you're gonna focus your attention and, and, and refer your patients if you wanna generate those shared savings. And so it's those opportunities to look for huge um, price variation um, that represent opportunities to think about scaling and, and um, reducing costs and scaling models. Things that I've observed both in Minnesota and around the country is the effort of transparency has been very difficult. Um, and part of it is methodology and you know, what is appropriate data that consumers should be relying on. And the other part, you know, frankly, is that some of the providers aren't eager for consumers to be you know, making choices based on cost and quality. Um, and, you know, I, I agree with you that there have been spots and opportunities, but I'm also just struck by the challenges and the barriers that, and I, and, and so your focus on the provider side of it seems to me to be, you know, more promising, even though, you know, it's the, the progress has been incremental and you've got a whole lot of providers sitting on the sidelines. The number of ACOs is stagnated or maybe even declined over the last five years. I mean, there's a lot of uh, work ahead, but it seems to me more promising than, you know, relying on, on, you know, this lone individual going into healthcare and saying, oh yeah, this is, I'm going to ignore my doctor and make this choice. Yeah. And I think someone said it well in the, in the chat um, that it's necessary, but not sufficient. So, yeah. Um, yeah, this kind of is a related question. Is value-based care looked at differently when um, it involves an individual making a choice about a chronic condition that requires care? For instance, a surgery or a drug may not require the patient to have as much self-management strategies. I think that's where we're hoping physicians can help navigate. I think managing chronic conditions and managing multiple chronic conditions is um, is an area where you know we've uh, we've looked at models. We think there's a lot of promise. We're trying to figure out what the best approach is to um, help manage care. What is the best model for very seriously ill um, or you know high cost or high need beneficiaries? And um, we've had a a couple of different approaches to testing that. We pulled one back recently, um, the seriously ill population um, part of the primary care first model uh, because we couldn't make the mechanics of it work. But um, that is sort of the, you know, if we can help solve that, I think we've made a contribution, but it's, um, it's a hard nut to crack. There's been a very long debate about whether health is a function of our personal health decisions versus the larger um, environment, society we live in. Question from Cheryl, Cheryl Bailey. Americans in poorer health and in similar countries in part because of our weight, sedentary lifestyle, alcohol and tobacco use. 
and the consumption of processed foods? What can government do to encourage better health habits? Would that produce better cost control and better outcomes? I mean, it's a good question. And that question came up during the Affordable Care Act. Um, and there was a, a very strong push for more wellness, more sort of um, self-care approaches. I think one element of um, one policy in the, in the legislation let employers um, put a certain amount of premium dollars towards wellness programs and participation in well, wellness programs. And the exchanges or the marketplaces, the premiums there can vary by tobacco use. Um, some, some argued we should let premiums vary by other health factors or health conditions. But I think at some point, it looks like you're just underwriting. Um, and it looks like you're letting insurance companies write um, policies and charge sick people more. So where do you draw that line between encouraging better behavior but not punishing people for you know, inherent um, underlying health um, health issues. So I think that's probably an ongoing debate. We probably need to do more in this country. We could do more in um, food labeling. We could do more in, in nutrition labeling. That was something else the ACA tried to do was provide calorie counts and nutritional information at restaurants um, at, you know, above a certain size. They've got to provide that information that was one attempt to try to get people to be more mindful of calorie consumption and and nutrition i think that works to to some level but it's probably not the full answer question from hazel tanner have you considered using community health workers to um, assist patients navigate the system and address social determinants of health I think we haven't done a lot of that, but I think our administrator, Chiquita Brooks-Lachur, has um, expressed an interest in trying to find more ways of engaging community health workers and um, community-based organizations. I think she sees a lot of promise in, um, in community-based care. So, um, so that's certainly something that we're looking at um, based on her strong interest. Got a question. Um, you and I first started to interact back when you were working for Senator Baucus, I was writing a book on healthcare and you were, you were one of the key people uh, in the Senate working with the White House. Um, and so you have a deep knowledge of the Affordable Care Act and its construction. Um, and you know about the compromises. I'm curious, looking back 20 years, do you think the Affordable Care Act uh, has made you know, significant mistakes? So I think, you know, the legislative process is an imperfect process. Um, and in this case, it was definitely in, an imperfect process. You had a Senate bill, you had a House bill. Um, and somewhere along the line, we lost our 60th vote in the Senate to bring the bill back from conference. And so what ended up passing was the Senate bill with some changes through reconciliation, a process that allowed us to make some corrections um, without the 60 vote hurdle. So that process was necessarily, I think, imperfect, um, just the way to get the bill passed. Um, you know, I think passing legislation of that size and that complexity is like threading a needle um, to get the votes right, the bill, you know, the messaging right, the language right, the score right, the Congressional Budget Office that 
you know, has to give us the numbers, the impact. Um, but I will say it's made a huge difference for millions of people um, in expanding health coverage. Um, it's, you know, obviously been impacted by the Supreme Court decision that made Medicaid expansion optional rather than um, as the statute envisioned it, um, more of a, a compelled choice for states. Um, and that's impacted, um, you know, the ability to reach more people, but it has had a huge impact. Um, and we get stories every day of um, people who feel like their lives have been changed and even saved by the coverage that they've received that they wouldn't have otherwise had. If somehow the 2022 uh, Liz Fowler could beam back to 2009, what would be the one or two things you might say, here's something we're not paying enough attention to that we should be, it'll make a big difference in, in 10 years or 15 years? I mean, I think we did the best with what we had at the time. Um, and I think people don't realize how hard that uh, that legislation was to get passed at the time. Um, and, um, you know, I think maybe we would have moved faster. Um, and, you know, I say that as someone who worked for the last committee to mark up the legislation and we were the ones holding back, um, you know, the timeline. So, um, but I think if we would have moved faster and been able to make some of the changes that we were looking at making in conference, um, maybe it would have, maybe it would have been, you know, a different bill, um, but not that much different than I think what ended up passing. Criticisms has been that um, the Affordable Care Act wasn't that affordable, that more money should have been put in for the, um, deductibles, it should have been more, you know, these cliffs, if you're, if you're poor, it's more generous than if you're middle class. Um, do, you, do you think that was an area where in hindsight, if you were there with 2022 knowledge and 2009, something could have been done or is it just, you know, that trillion dollar kind of limit, uh, just put a break on really going much further? I mean, look at the Congress now that's trying to pass I mean, I think you don't realize, you know, that when a member says, I'm not going to vote for anything above this amount, um, and you're a staffer working on it, you're not looking at, you know, of course, could have been more generous, could have been more, um, you know, more subsidies, less cliffs. I think we did the best we could with what we had on the table and with the votes that we had, uh, which now seems like a lot more votes than, than we've got uh, today, so... Yeah, so these issues were very much in conversation. There was an understanding that being, um, you know, providing more funding for the subsidies and for um, uh, extend them higher up the income ladder, that was understood the consequences of that. It wasn't like, oops, we forgot about that. I think, I'm not sure we, you know, in terms of the cliff, the 400% um, cliff, I think, yeah, we wouldn't have had a cliff. I mean, I think if we would have had more funding, we could have had no cliff. We could have provided, you know, some level of funding across um, the income spectrum. Um, and yeah, any policy you have when you have a cliff um, is going to create these sort of problems. Um, but again, um, you know, hindsight is always 2020. And I think the bill has made a tremendous amount of difference for a lot of people. I've got a 
inside the Beltway question for you. Um, Susan Page is coming next week, talk about her book on um, uh, Speaker Pelosi. Um, and one of the things that Susan uh, says in the book, and others have said this, is that Pelosi was really the hero of the Affordable Care Act, that she stepped in at key moments, she pressured Obama at key moments. Do you think she, maybe she doesn't get the credit she deserves for uh, the Affordable Care Act and how it turned out? I absolutely think she deserves a tremendous amount of credit. And so does uh, Senator Reid in the Senate. Um, having watched them, um, having watched real leadership try to try to maneuver them and, and get something passed that they really believed in, um, despite every obstacle, um, despite every difficulty, despite every CBO score that comes back that's not what you wanted it to be, despite you know, the external environment, um, the pressures from all sides, do more, do less, don't do this, do that. Um, she is an incredible leader. I was really privileged to be able to have that seat and, and uh, watch that process, um, as was our administrator who was uh, working on the House side at the time in that environment in the House and probably would have more to say about that. I several folks here who uh, share what I want to say, which is Thank you for this incredible information. Um, Liz Fowler, you are a uh, really important and, um, and rare voice uh, in Washington in our health policy debates. I wanna thank you very much for joining us um, and for this terrific conversation. Well, thanks a lot for the opportunity. And look, I know there's disagreements out there and I know we could always do more. And, and I meant it when I said that we are interested in hearing from folks. So. Um, that's always been the case as, as a public servant, that is part of my job is to listen and make sure that we're reflecting, uh, what we're hearing. So I appreciate the chat, the questions, uh, and the conversation. So thanks, Larry. Thank you very much. Um, before we, I know that Liz Fowler, you may have to run off to your next meeting, but before I sign off, I want to just give a heads up for some of our upcoming, uh, programs. As I just mentioned, um, We've got a terrific conversation uh, next week, uh, Tuesday, January 25th. Um, we've got a conversation uh, at noon with Susan Page, who's a USA Today uh, Washington Bureau Chief on her book, uh, Madam Speaker. It's about uh, Nancy Pelosi. It is a very interesting um, uh, book. It really takes you inside um, Speaker Pelosi. You may be a conservative and not like Pelosi, but this is something you can learn from because it, she is admired across the aisle as um, frankly tough and strategic and, and quite smart about how to get things done in Washington. Um, February 3rd, uh, we've got a terrific conversation that we're gonna be part of and we're eager to, um, to promote. Um, it's called, Why Has the Unequal Economic Status of Black Americans Persisted into the 21st Century? Our special guest is Glenn Larry, uh, who is the uh, professor at Brown University, host of The Glenn Show, um, and is a well-known conservative commentator with often talking about critically the traditional civil rights movement. Uh, I have a lot of admiration for Glenn Lowry. I'm glad he's, he's gonna be here. Um, and that's February 3rd. Um, finally, I just wanna let you know that uh, video recording of this terrific conversation with Liz Fowler 
will be available in about a day or two. It'll uh, be posted right here, um, but it's also available um, on your various social media uh, platforms as a podcast and also as a um, YouTube uh, video. So I wanna once again, thank our terrific partner, Scott Kiefer and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota. Um, our programs are free and open. Um, if you're interested in joining our donor circle, please get in touch. Once again, thanks for joining us. Take care.